We are in the book of Jude. We're going to look at verses 5, 6, and 7. And I understand that some of you guys haven't been here the last couple weeks. And others of you have really short-term memories like myself. So, last time in Jude. Jude writes this letter sometime between 68 and 70 A.D. Jude is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. That's the man writing this. There's not a whole lot known about this man, Jude, other than the fact that his brother was James, James who was the pastor at the Jerusalem church, James who wrote the book of James. And like James, Jude wasn't a believer until after the resurrection took place. He didn't think Jesus was legit until after he rose from the dead. That's the Jude who's writing this story to us. And of the 25 verses in Jude's letter, 19 of them can be found in parallel accounts within 2 Peter. And where Peter uses future tenses to describe the impending threat of the spiritual pretenders, Jude uses present tense, which leads many to the conclusion that in so much as Jude functions, it serves as a sequel to 2 Peter. And so Jude opens this letter up, his greeting, and he explains in the early verses that his status, his security, is not found in what the world would have you find it. It's not found in his good looks or his talent. It's not found in even the darker past of his life. It's found in the fact that he's a slave of Christ. It's found in the fact of who is his owner, Jesus Christ. That's what it is found in. His status, his security is in the fact of who his owner is as a slave of Christ. And his owner has called him, as he calls all believers. We are called, we are beloved, and we're kept for. Our status is completely secure in our owner, Jesus Christ. And we are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. And because of those realities that we're called, that we're specifically chosen, that we're beloved, you're not just, it's not just Jesus loves you, but Jesus loved you before the foundations of the world. Read Ephesians 1, 4-6. Before the foundations of the world, he had you in mind and adopted you as his sons and daughters. Man, that, that, that raises the stakes there. Oh, by the way, you're kept for Jesus Christ. You're kept for. People I know a lot of times they struggle with, can I lose my salvation? And I always tell them, well, you didn't have anything to do with making your salvation. So, no, you can't lose it. I, I've thrown around the Matt Chandler quote, like, God doesn't save you because you give him permission. He saves you because he's God. You're kept for Jesus Christ. You are secure in Him. And because of that, because of those real realities, you may experience mercy, peace, and love. Mercy, peace, and love aren't just like nice words we throw out there like, oh, those are nice things. No, those are real and tangible because all the things that Judas said up to this point. And then he really begins the letter. Like the wheels start turning in verses 3 and 4, and we saw this last week. Jude begins writing this letter, and actually... He was going to write about something completely unrelated to what he ends up writing about. He was going to write about their common salvation, and then something happens. Maybe a knock on the door. Maybe a messenger comes in and brings him urgent news that there is an impending threat, a real, present, dangerous threat in the lives of believers that he knows. And so literally, maybe he's, he's writing this, oh my goodness, i got to start over, boom. 
So he was going to write about their common salvation, ends up writing to address this current, real, present, dangerous threat of these spiritual phonies, these spiritual pretenders who have come into the church. And he calls the church to battle. He calls the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because of these individuals who have crept in unnoticed, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the issue. It's not that they say, we deny that Jesus is our Lord and Master. It's not that at all. See, if that was the case, you'd be like, oh, there they are. He wouldn't have said they crept in unnoticed. That's a pretty noticeable thing. So I would illustrate what he's saying with Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. That is the case here. Or maybe modern day illustration. I told you about some of my classmates I had. Um, my small Christian school growing up in Alaska. One of my classmates posted on Facebook. Um, actually, it was her husband posted on Facebook. He was a class ahead of me. But he posted that he had made the decision to become a woman. They were going to stay together. You know, his wife was okay with it. Their kids were okay with it. Everything was fine. Um, made the decision to change his name illegally uh, to Lacey, yada, yada, yada. Whatever. But throughout the post... At the beginning and the end, he maintained his Christianity. I think that would be a good modern day illustration. It's not that they're saying, we deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. It's that they deny him by the very things they're doing. They're justifying their sin. He calls them ungodly because they pervert God's grace into a license to do essentially whatever they want to do and justify it. That's what they're doing. No, it's okay. I love him. Okay? It's okay. I love her. It's okay that we're, we're, we're doing this or we're doing that because we love each other. No, it's not. It's not okay. God says it's not okay. And so that's the issue that is set up. And Jude calls his readers to contend. To contend for the faith. Contend is a serious struggle. A serious struggle that you might find in Olympic games between athletes. In the original language, this word contend, this serious struggle... And it's a serious struggle because the stakes are very high. And then Jude writes verses 5, 6, and 7. Now you're caught up. Verse 5, he says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Stop. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. I really, I really thought about this phrase in verse 5. Why is he saying this? I want to remind you that you once fully knew it. Have they forgotten what he's about to tell them? He's going to serve up three illustrations of ultimately God's wrath on different Old Testament stories. God's wrath and judgment. That's what he's going to do. And he says, I want to remind you. <coughs> and I'm thinking, Jude, why would you say that? Why, why, do you, why does Jude feel the need to remind them of something that they once fully knew? And I think, quite frankly, Jude's motivation for doing this is potentially because there is a temptation on the part of the believers to maybe get caught up with some of these spiritual pretenders and go along with them. Because it's easier. Because everyone else is. Because if they have to truly contend for their faith, that might be really uncomfortable. And so he's going to tell them of three different stories. Verse 5, 
Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. Destroyed those who did not believe. It's the story of the Exodus. Israel has been in slavery and physical. They're physical slaves of the Egyptians for some 400 years. God sends his servant Moses, says, Pharaoh, let my people go. It's a redemption story. It's a pretty cool story. It's a story of love. God rescuing his people out of this physical slavery. But there's another part to it. And the other part, actually, you can find some of this. If you read 1 Corinthians 10, it tells you, actually, in one day, God killed 20,000 people of that remnant of Israel that he rescued out of Egypt because they did not believe as Jude says. And much in the same way, you see this parallel. God physically rescues Egypt out of slavery. God spiritually rescues the church. And yet there are people in that remnant out of Egypt that he's rescued who are illegitimate, who are not legit. And just like he rescued the church, there are people... And we know, Jude already told us, who've crept in unnoticed, who are there, who are illegit. They are not legit. And this is the point. If God didn't withhold judgment, if God did not withhold justice on his own people, like you think, if anyone's going to get special treatment, it's going to be you know, the people he just rescued out of Egypt. If he destroyed those who did not believe, then it stands to reason that he is also going to judge and bring such condemnation that Jude already talked about on the spiritual pretenders in the church. They're not going to escape this. That's the first illustration he shows. If Israel, if if they didn't escape, God dealt with them, he's going to deal with the people in the church who are illegitimate. The second illustration he uses is this, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority... But left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Potentially two different references that Jude could be referring to. One is Genesis 6, the reference to the sons of God. Some people believe the Genesis 6 reference to the sons of God refers to angels who left their place of authority, came, took on the appearance of man, had sexual relations with women here on earth, and ultimately gave offspring to what is called the Nephilim. That's the original language word. Yeah, actually, that's a very legitimate theory. Um, is that what Judah's referring to? Maybe, maybe not. Possibly. We can talk more about a small group. One thing is clear. These angels did not stay within their own position of authority. Like one thing is ultimately clear that is really not up for debate is the story in Isaiah chapter 14. If you want to flip there, I'm going to read just a quick passage. Isaiah 14 recalls the great coup in heaven when the great serpent, when Satan himself attempted to overthrow our great God and king and was ultimately crushed in that rebellion. This is what I believe unequivocally Jude is definitely referring to. While he may potentially be referring also to the Genesis 6 account, this is one thing I think is clear. In Isaiah chapter 14, this is a reference to Satan's foiled attempt to overthrow God. Verse 12 of chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He's just told us two stories now. If apostate Israel, apostate, essentially those who reject the truth. If apostate Israel, after you rescued them, ignored the truth about you, did not believe, and you destroyed them, then stands to reason these spiritual pretenders will meet the same fate. If apostate angels who rebelled, who tried to overthrow you, did not escape judgment, then it stands to reason that these spiritual pretenders that are, that are infiltrated this church Judah's writing to, that they will meet the same fate. And he serves up the third illustration. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Pastor Dane mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah in brief. Pretty, pretty sick, pretty nasty place. Um, indulging in all types of sexual immorality. Jude actually gets really specific. He says they pursued unnatural desires. In the original language, unnatural desires literally means... To go after another flesh. And that really can be illustrated when the angels come to rescue Lot. The mob surrounds his house. Say, all the dudes are like, hey, bring out, bring out those two guys that came. And Lot says, no, 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 I'll give you my daughters instead. Like, not sure what's up with that either. But, no, 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 we want those dudes. We want to have our way with them. They pursued another flesh. These were, these were terrible, terrible situations that were taking place. Remember, why is Jude telling these stories? Jude wants his readers to be willing to contend for the faith. He writes them these three illustrations to remind them of something they once fully knew. Potentially, perhaps, because some of them are like, eh. Well, they say they're Christians. Even though they're having sex and they're not married. But they say they're Christians and they say it's okay because they're married in their hearts. Or, or whatever it is. They justify their sin. And it's really easy, especially in our society, when it comes to certain things in this book which really aren't that popular and are increasingly becoming more and more unpopular to just go along with the mainstream. And Jude wants his readers to know, don't do that. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. It is a serious struggle. Contend for the faith. Don't go along with them. I'm going to remind you of these three stories. And, and if this doesn't make it real, I don't know what else will. Because all three stories, all these people have one thing in common. They didn't listen to God. They didn't believe God. They rejected God. They turned on God. And God destroyed them. God's punishment was poured out for them. It's not going to be any different for the spiritual pretenders that are in your church. And it won't be any different if you side with them. If you go along with them. 
And so we see God's past record of judgment to remind us. Remember, he's saying, I want to remind you of what you fully once knew. We see God's past record of judgment to serve as a reminder to us that it is never safe to ignore his instructions. The temptation's there all the time. And I would say there's a big difference, I want to be clear, a huge difference between someone who says, and I'll use uh, a sexual relationship of nature, Jude talks about sensuality, um, they're perverting God's grace. There is a difference between the guy who says, Joe, I'm a Christian, but me and my girlfriend, we're going to live together, and God's okay with that, he understands that, and that's just how it's going to be. That individual is like these guys, okay? Justifying what they want to do versus the guy who says, Joe, can't keep my hands off my girlfriend, I know it's wrong, I know it's sin, I don't want to do it, okay? That sensitivity to sin, that, that awareness of, like, God died for sin, recognizing how serious that sin is. There, there's a difference. Okay? I want to make sure I'm really clear so you guys are, are, aren't confused here. There's a difference there. <coughs> but it is never safe to ignore God's instructions, regardless of how unpopular they may be. Are you willing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Do you have the stomach for it? Let me get real practical right now. It's probably no surprise that maybe a growing number of you are, are realizing that it's becoming more and more unpopular to maybe be a Christian in 2015 than it was even in 2014. Because it is. Um, we're not in Kansas anymore, guys. And, and it's difficult because it's so hard living in this Lynchburg area because it feels like the popular thing is to go to church, to love Jesus, to, to do all Christian things. Like, this seems like the thing. It's, it's not. It's not. It's cool, but it's not. It's not the popular thing. You are in the minority. You are, as First Peter says, sojourners and exiles like your spiritual forefathers Mentioned in the book of Daniel, who were exiles in Babylon. Like, this isn't the promised land that you're living in today. This is Babylon. This is Babylon, and we are exiles here. And you think of the story of Daniel. Daniel's cast in to the lion's den for defying the king's edict that he would not pray to anyone other than the king. In other words, Daniel was told to stop doing the very thing that was right, that was true, that was from God. And what's more, really interesting, I thought, Daniel didn't just keep praying, but he prayed with the windows open where everyone could see. He didn't just disobey, he defied. Or maybe Jude would say, he contended for the faith. A similar story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, also in the book of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar gives the order, when the music occurs, you will bow down to the statue. You will worship it. That's what you'll do. And if you don't, we'll kill you. <laughs> 
Simple enough? And even upon threat of their lives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the statue. Which brings us to our present situation. The Supreme Court's recent ruling on gay marriage over the summer wasn't just some average whatever decision. It was an act of high defiance against the creator of the universe where the state is attempting to define marriage, to define men and women, what they are and what they are for. But the fact is, is they don't have that authority. The Constitution doesn't have that authority. God alone has the authority to do that. God alone has the authority to define not only what marriage is, but what men and women are and what they were made for. No one but God. The Supreme Court is playing their music and demanding that we all become liars. Like the Roman emperors of the 2nd and 3rd century who would demand that you come and burn incense and declare that Caesar is Lord and acknowledge his divinity. And I'm going to tell you right now, we should refuse. Now, I can already hear the objections, okay? There's, there, you're gonna, I can hear the objections because no, people are going to say, no one's asking you to worship anything, Joe. Okay, I don't know if that's the same thing. No one's asking you to worship anything. In fact, you can worship whoever you want to worship. No one's saying any of that thing. But you will issue that marriage license. You will bake that cake. Or else. And this sort of objection, I'm going to be really clear right now, this sort of objection fails to recognize what the public act in and of itself actually means. You see, whether you're bowing down to a statue, whether you're burning incense to Caesar, declaring that he's Lord, or whether you're issuing a marriage license, at the end of the day, I'll tell you this, Caesar doesn't care whether you burn and say Caesar is Lord, but deep down in your heart you mean you're praying, God, I don't really mean that. Okay, I got my fingers crossed behind my back. I don't really mean that. Like Caesar doesn't care about that. Caesar doesn't care that you worship Jesus behind closed doors or in the depths of your heart. What Caesar cares about is that you acknowledge his absolute divine right as emperor in public. That's what Caesar cares about. See, whether it's bowing down, whether it's offering incense, whether it's issuing a marriage license at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you believe deep down in your heart. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have, okay, they, they, could, have, they could have got down on their hands, they could have bowed down, and, and they could have at least given the appearance of worshiping the statue and not been thrown into the fiery furnace. And they could have been the whole time being like, all right, God, I'm really worshiping you in this moment, despite what it looks like. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar would never have known, nor would, never have ne- nor would Nebuchadnezzar have actually cared. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have cared because Nebuchadnezzar would have gotten exactly what he wanted, their participation in public, which was a brazen lie. 
My short answer, people say, Joe, would you do a homosexual wedding? My short answer is, no, I, I can't because it's not a real wedding, because it's not a real marriage, because ultimately it, it's, it's a lie. You say, well, the state says it's a real marriage. Well, the state doesn't have the authority to say it's a real marriage. This, this, that, that authority comes only from God. From the first marriage in Genesis 2, um, that God alone defines that. I can't do it because I would be participating in a lie. And people say, well, it doesn't matter. Deep down in your heart, that's not the issue. Nebuchadnezzar would have never known had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, he would have not known that they were truly worshiping worshiping God. But the fact is, is he would not have cared one bit because he got exactly what he wanted. The public participation in this brazen lie. Jude tells us that we are to contend for the faith. And many of us <coughs> don't even know, one, what this looks like. Looks like Daniel. But that's the law! Yeah, Daniel didn't care. Looks like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's the law! Yeah, those guys didn't care either. It looks like the Roman martyrs of the 2nd and 3rd century who were required by law to issue incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. It's the law! Yeah, they don't care either. Even knowing a piece of metal will probably penetrate their chest cavity and their life will come to an end right there. In the end, they approach Nebuchadnezzar. They don't approach him like a, a dog with his, leg, with his tail between his legs. And I don't want you guys to either. When you're in those conversations, yeah, contend for the faith. You get the opportunity to say, well, do you, what do you think about this? Well, I think it's wrong because the Bible says so. You think it's wrong? I mean, I had a conversation with a soldier over the summer. Really? Well, why? Because of 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Huh, I read it to him. Huh. Well, why else? Because of Romans 1, 18. Huh, why else? Because of Romans 1, 26. Huh, why else? Because of Romans 1, 27. Huh, why else? Because of Romans 1, 28. So to contend for the faith, we need to know what... It is that we believe. Otherwise, you will be very ineffective in contending. And two, you need to have the stomach. Because some of you, you don't have the stomach. Some of you, you're like, I just got deleted as a friend off of Facebook. I don't think I can do this anymore. (laughs) Some of you need to have the stomach. It will inevitably be much more difficult to be a Christian in the years to follow 2015 than it is now. And the tendency of many people who claim the name of Christ is to go along with the masses, go along with popular culture, and to ignore what the scriptures say. I'm not a Christian because it's popular. Neither should you. You say, that's hard. Yep. I could get killed. Yep. But Jesus says hard things all the time. Read the Bible. Unless you're willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. An instrument of death and torture in the ancient world. That sounds hard. Yep. And so, how do we respond in those moments when we contend for the faith? 
I don't do it like this. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Like, I know I'm going to offend you. I don't even want to say this, but this is what I believe, and I'm really sorry. And uh, like, yeah, this is what I believe, and this is what the Bible says. And please forgive me if I'm judgmental or I'm condemning or I'm whatever, and I'm making you uncomfortable. Trust me, people are going to feel uncomfortable because they don't want to hear the truth in the first place. That's Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth about God. No. And neither do you contend for the faith in a rant and rave about the injustice. How dare they? Americans a Christian country. You're not living in Kansas anymore, guys. You're living in Babylon. You're exiles. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised. So neither do we, as a dog between his legs, apologize as we continue with the faith. And neither do we do it in a haughty or arrogant way either. No, we walk straight down to that firing squad and with a clean conscience, we say, go ahead, do your worst. Because we know in whom we believe and our God reigns. Do your worst. Throw me in the fire. Throw me to the lions. Run the, the piece of metal through my chest. As many of our spiritual ancestors all said as they contended for the faith. If this is Babylon, may we be a Daniel. If this is Babylon, may we be a Shadrach. If this is Rome, may we be like the martyrs of Rome, who instead of confessing that Caesar is Lord, he instead said, Jesus is Lord. May we have the stomach to do that. May we have the stomach to endure getting our feelings hurt. May we have the stomach to endure even potentially bodily harm or threat of death. That God might grant us that type of faith to be able to do what Jude instructs us to do. To contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a serious struggle. It's not for wimps. And your own willpower alone won't prevail in those moments when the fiery furnace is there. When it's real. But God... God can give you the faith to get through those moments. To have the stomach to know that I might lose that friendship. And I might even die. But I'm going to stand. And I'm going to contend. Because it's the right thing to do. God, we love you. We worship you. You're awesome. You rock. May we have courage to be able to contend for the faith. Even if it's unpopular. May we do it in a loving way. May we not do it in a way that would misrepresent you. Give us the courage. Help us to be like a Daniel. Help us to be like a Shadrach. Help us to do the things that Jude is telling us to do, even though it's unpopular. Even though it would be a lot easier to go along with the crowds. Or like even some pastor today say, well, my views are evolving. I'm still figuring things out. No, help us to, help us to stand firm in the truths of Scripture. We need you, God. Give us that type of faith. Amen.